Welcome to the Dauntless Grace Exchange. I'm here with Deidre. Hi, Deidre. Hi, and I'm here with Megan. And that is lovely. I didn't have to say my name and act like I don't know how to say it. See that? So this, we so we're sticking it. with this. This is a we, thing now. We're doing this now. Or we'll okay. do something different every week. Maybe that would be better, but I, I can't go back. That feels like a lot of pressure. Yeah, that, that's too much. Yeah. You Can know, I tell you that I'm really having trouble working this week because I'm so excited about all of the things that I'm looking forward to this month. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, like some of my favorite podcasts, we get to find out what's going on in people's lives. And we're like, let's dive into subtypes. So I was going to say, when this episode airs, you will be in like Manhattan. Talk about that. Talk about that for a second. I probably need to get more familiar with a map because I'm not really sure where actual Manhattan is versus it's, other it's, parts of New York City. It's the island, I'm pretty sure. So I'm, I'll be on an island. Is that what you're saying? Maybe all of New York City is an island. <laughs> My sister is listening to this with her, her head in her hands like, oh, dear Lord, thank God Paul's going with her. <laughs> I'm not sure how much more helpful that's going to be. He's never been there either. No, but he just can look at a map and get his bearings. I, I will be like, well, we're in NYC. There we go. This is fun. You know, so I just got back from a trip to Boston with my husband. And every single time we would walk out of a place and I would like confidently start walking in one direction. And he's like, where are you going? And I was like, back back to the hotel. And he's like, oh, well, it's that way. I'm like, oh, well, last night we walked out of this place and went this way. And he goes, right. We didn't go back to the hotel then. I was like, See, now you're taking away a little bit of the fun that Deidre and I have when we travel together, which is like, let's just wander blindly and see what happens to our day. And he's like, no, I know directions. <laughs> it's called exploring, Ronnie. Right. <laughs> We're not on a time schedule. It's fine. We'll just wander around 30 degree Boston rainy weather and just assume we're going to find where we need to go. <laughs> I think the other problem that we always run into whether we're using the walking map, which I just have a whole problem with, or we're driving, we'll get really close to the thing and then turn it off and be like, it's fine. We got it from here. And, and guess what? We don't have it from here. Every single time I do that, I'm like, oh no, yeah, I can do it from here. And you're like, turn it back on, turn it back on. Too many missed exits with that posture of go get it. We got it. Nope. In fact, did not. <laughs> Well, okay. So my report is that Boston was lovely. I definitely want to go back. Uh, I loved every part of it, except I would never want to drive in the city. And I'm anticipating mm -hmm. that your report on New York City when you come back is going to be very similar. It was beautiful. Oh, I want to yeah. go back. I'll never drive in it. <laughs> we'll never drive in that city. Yeah, no. Um, and you don't need to when you are in a more pedestrian area and you're not living there and going grocery shopping, you just get dropped off. We, right. we'll try to use the subway. We'll see how that goes. I don't feel like we should be there without doing that. We did not use the subway in Boston. We thought about it a couple of times and honestly, it was just easier to walk and or grab an Uber. Like sometimes Ubers were so cheap there just to do like a 10 minute drive that it was, we were like, okay, we could spend a half hour on the subway or pay $8 for a 10 minute Uber. So. Right. We did what, that. Um, do they call it the subway in Boston? Um, I want to say it was like the T or something like the I train. Feel like every city has like a different name. It's like the L in Chicago because it's elevated, or the Metrolink here in St. Louis because it just—I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I—I I don't exactly know what it was called. We we did wander into a station for it one time accidentally, so we saw it at the very least. 
Um, but yeah, it was beautiful. And lest our listeners think that we only travel to cold weather, windy cities in the winter, you also have a trip coming up to Florida and we have a cruise in the Caribbean to look forward to in January. So there's that. I've never done this much vacation travel before. Like it's crazy. Um, most of my trips are either work trips or missions trips or like church conferences, youth conferences, or a Dauntless Grace conference. Or maybe we can like sneak away for a long weekend to sleep on the floor of someone's house that we met on the internet, which we highly recommend. We've met a lot of amazing people that way. We haven't done that in like a decade. Like it's been a long time now. It has partially because we've been doing work trips. So at least we have Mm -hmm. hotels paid for, which is nice. Right. And airfare. We slept in one house with this gal we had never met in person and she had two toddlers and graciously let us have their room, but they were like toddler size mattresses on On the the floor. floor. That was a rather miserable night while her babies were crying in the other room. And I was feeling so terrible about them not being in their room. So no one was sleeping. (laughs) It was awful. Yeah. She was very gracious, but um, it's definitely better and easier to travel with hotels and someone else paying the dime. And honestly, my Boston trip was a work conference. So I am really looking forward to the cruise because I cannot actually remember the last time like it's different when you take your kids. I call those trips. I don't call those vacations. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't actually remember the last time I was on a vacation that had nothing to do with my kids or work or Dauntless Grace or um, I've traveled with you where it was my vacation, but you were still working half the time, which is a little bit different. So yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for the cruise. Um, our honeymoon, we actually went to Orlando, Florida. So we didn't really, I wouldn't call that an excursion. It was fun though. And it's at the time what like Paul really wanted to do. And we just, and how many years ago was that? 25. And so that's why we're going to New York this year to celebrate our 25th. And we're going to Florida with our kids to celebrate that with them. But I wanted, like you said, a trip without the kids, love them, but yeah. Um, so New York was somewhere that we were going to go for our 10th anniversary. And that's when this first, you know, kind of planted that seed in our minds. We're theater people. We've never been to New York city. I don't even understand. Um, but around our 10th anniversary is when we were waiting for travel to Ethiopia to uh, get our last son to pick him up from for his embassy appointment there. And so we ended up not traveling until I guess it was February, but we, you know, that December, we didn't have the money for another trip. We didn't even have the right. money for Ethiopian airfare, to be honest. So we did not go anywhere. So we ended up bringing him home two months after our 10th anniversary. And then it was just like crazy. A lot of kids, a lot of kids, no money, uh, it's hard to make arrangements to leave for a long time with littles. Now, yeah. little Ash is 15 and I have an adult man at home with my oldest and everyone else is at college. <laughs> like, you know, like there's just see ya. And, I, and I'm like, bye. <laughs> I will arrange rides and make sure that there are food, there is food in the fridge. So I hope you have a blast in New York, um, but I also haven't been there and I can't get my husband to go with me. So I'm going to make you a list of things that you can't do until I go with you. So just FYI. (laughs) I don't know about the can't do, but because I already have the list, but I will always do things again and again because I like to do things. I mean, we've been going to a hundred times because we like it. So I will. There's really only, there's really only one thing on that list anyway, and that you won't care about. I I care about. Serendipity. Yeah. (laughs) I ate at a serendipity ice cream place in Webster Groves years ago and got cinnamon ice cream. I don't open anymore. Oh, weird. Well, I don't know how long we've been talking, but we're not actually going to get to the right stuff now if we don't stop talking about vacations. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So here we go. 
We have been talking about instinctual subtypes. So two weeks ago, our episode was explaining them. And I'll let Megan do a real quick recap on that. Last week's episode, we actually broke them down for types nine, eight, seven, and six. So today, right. our goal, if we can reduce our words a little bit, will be to get five <laughs> through one. Or this is just like the podcast extended version. <laughs> we are going to get down to one today, but we're starting with five since we're working our way backwards on this series. Um, right. So tell us real quickly how, what the three instincts are, the three zones, and then we'll get started. Okay. So the three instincts are self-preservation, social, and sexual. And if you want the breakdown of the three zones, you either need to go listen to that intro episode or find my uh, intro graphic for this series on my Instagram, because I don't remember them off the top of my head. Um, When you take those instincts and you combine them with the passion or the sin of each Enneagram type, you get the three subtypes. So there are 27 subtypes in the Enneagram. We have broken down those, the three subtypes each for nine, eight, seven, six. Today, we're going to start with fives and we're going to start with self-preservation fives. All right. So starting with five, the self-preservation, here's just a bullet list of what kind of defines them. They hoard privacy and space as the most easily drained. They determine to have a place to think alone, and they do not require much in the way of self-care or comfort. Um, To me, this feels a little bit like how we teach a five to be. Mm -hmm. So again, each of these connect, these three instincts connect to the sin or vice or passion and four or five that's hoarding or the other word would be avarice. And so the way that they hoard in self-preservation fives is that privacy and space and just needing to be alone to think, to process through their thinking. Um, So yeah, what is their name? Yeah, they're the, they're the typical five. They're the ones most drained by interaction. Um, And the the way so what we've been doing last week we decided that we were going to tell you what Claude Naranjo calls each subtype but we don't like his naming conventions as much so we're going to stick with what Hudson says so Naranjo calls a self-pres five castle which emphasizes the tendency to isolate and create a fortress-like existence which is kind of cool that is kind of cool that's the first one of his names I like <laughs> I know but in the same way um, Hudson calls the self-pres five solitude because mm-hmm. that's their primary value Okay, so the difference with that and the social is that a social five avoids needing too much social contact. They're curious and loyal in relationships, and they enjoy developing expertise in a subject or skill. Mm-hmm. So like maybe it sounds like they have a little more energy to give to things. Yeah, they don't necessarily care about like socialization, but they want to communicate about what they're interested in. So like a, like knowledge sharing is more important maybe than soul connection for them, but there is a, a value there of connection in, in that sense, right? Yeah. Um, they're, they're, so they like the contribution zone. They want to know what that what they're putting out there means something to other people. Sure. So it's not, again, necessarily about that soul connection as much as the participation and contribution part. Naranjo calls the social fives totems. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is referring to like a totem pole and it's about how they connect ideas together. I don't quite understand it because I'm not well-versed in totem poles. Um, so <laughs> That's weird. Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> right? <laughs> but Hudson calls the social five the specialist because oh. they're the ones who really develop that expertise about particular subjects. 
yeah, that makes sense. I like that. Okay. So the sexual is the counter type for a five mm -hmm. and they're caught between instinct to be involved and a need to pull back and they tap into emotions and fantasies. Yeah. So they might feel a little bit more like fours in some ways with that kind of imagination that can really go there. Um, Cause they, you know, especially if they have a four wing as a sexual five, Mm -hmm. But it can often be kind of really specialized, uh, like a five would be, and maybe sometimes dark and strange because fives really go into niche kinds of interests and, and things like that. Um, Naranjo calls the sexual five confidence, which talks about the sharing of confidences, but also that um, they need confidence to overcome the impulse to withdraw. So there's like a double meaning that he uses, but Hudson calls a sexual five you're going to hate this because it's a full sentence. He calls the sexual five. This is my world. <laughs> Why is there no parallel structure to these things? It drives me crazy. If this is my world. With 27, I understand. <laughs> yeah, parallel structure where we could decide that we're going to use an adjective or like a people-y kind of word, you know, like overcomer, specialist. But some of these, like, I just don't get it. Yeah, this is my world. So it's because the sexual five, they have such a dark inner world. Um, yeah. So everything exists in their heads a lot. Interesting. Okay. Well, we've been waiting for this one because I need to understand you more. No, I'm just kidding. Hang on, hang on. Let me, let's repeat the, the three names real fast for oh, the five. Yes. The ones that you like the best. And I think Neuron finally got one on the list for the yes. self-preservation. Self-preservation five is the castle. Social five is the specialist and sexual five is this is my world. <laughs> you just looked at the camera so seriously to say that it felt like a trailer. Because it's such a like ridiculous sentence. I get it. But can't they call it like inner world or something? Like Right. <laughs> We're going to call it inner world. There you go. <laughs> Listeners, make that easy on you. All right. Fours. Okay. The self-preservation four is the counter type of a four. So they use envy in creating beauty and aesthetics, and they're the most introverted of fours, but appear happy. So they're a little more of a, um, we might sunny. Call them, yeah, the sunny fours. <laughs> they're the creatives, right? They're the ones who dance in the fields with flowers. <laughs> the hippies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're like the rainbows and butterflies for it. Explain I think. the self-preservation thing though. I think that's interesting. Why how it connects with those resources. So if if one of the self-preservation zone is like that home space, that domesticity space, self-preses fours are the ones that are creating aesthetics environment, you know, those environments that are pleasing and comfortable and rich in meaning and and they're focused like really heavily on that domesticity zone. Okay. So they're about the atmosphere. So that can make sense because fours really want like their outsides to match their insides. And so if they're mm -hmm. more focused on those resources, which could be the home or whatever, they want them to have that fantasy, idyllic, beautiful, what the world could be. If, yeah, that makes sense. Right. And what's funny is that you'd think a self-preservation type would be concerned about themselves in a lot of ways. But because it's a self-pres four, and this is why it looks different from other self-pres numbers, 
they don't actually care as much about their own like health as much as their own emotional health. So yeah. they're still not going to care much about physical health, even if as a self-preservation type, because they're fours, they're still going to go, oh, well, I need this, but I need to have this experience for my soul that's more important than actually doing this thing that takes care of my physical body. Mm. Okay. That's good. What do we call them? <clears throat> well, Naranjo calls them reckless or dauntless, which is funny because oh, yeah, Hudson's like, no, this is so wrong because sixes, sevens, and eights could totally mistype if they're looking at that word reckless or dauntless. Yeah. So um, he's like, it, and the only reason he he thinks that they were called reckless is because of that putting the emotional needs before any other needs. Oh, okay. So it might not be about money. I don't have money for rent, but I need this antique clock in my house to complete the aesthetic or something like that. So it's reckless in that sense. Okay. Um, but it's, it's a misnomer. He says, so he likes the term, the sensualist. Okay. That makes sense. I am not a self-preservation for that is my least my, uh, my, my blind spot subtype. Okay. So a social four, and I think that our listeners are interested on where I landed on something, but after we got off of our first episode, <laughs> you're not totally sure that you're not flipping your top two too. So let's talk about these and then you can decide. All so right. the social four uses envy to explain not fitting in. They focus on contributing and making an impact and they embrace their uniqueness as a source of belonging. Social fours are like the typical four, like the most stereotypical. If fours can be stereotyped, this is the one. This is the one we teach to. Um, they might be a little bit more like outgoing because of that connection piece, but they're still fours. So they have the melancholy and they always have that longing. Like, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Naranjo calls this the shame one, which makes a lot of sense. Like they're the ones to most embrace that shame component. Um, but Interestingly, Hudson calls social fours the outsider because that's always the feeling that they have, even as they want and search for that connection all the time. I was actually, not to correct you, because I know you more know more about this, but I was actually thinking, I think the sexual four would be more social because the the social one, in terms of like, because oh, the social yes. one is excited that they don't fit in. And so they're going to set themselves as the outsider to kind of like live that out. Does that make sense? It does, but they... I, mean, I, I don't mean social, I mean extroverted, outgoing kinds of energy. I definitely think that's true in terms of energy, maybe, but they are always looking for that belonging. So they could do it in two ways. One is like adapting to fit in a little bit and kind of denying some of what they have and then finding that that's too hard so they can't. Like if they're not a nine, they're never going to be able to deny what they really want or feel like mm -hmm. they are for too long, but they might put on hats to try that. But a lot of times they, they try to fit in by differentiating. Yeah. I think that's what I'm, yeah, that's what I guess. Okay. So the sexual mm -hmm. is they use envy in attraction and lack. They emphasize edge and fusion. They don't have concern with stability in that regard. And they're led by energy and will take big risks in following. Yeah. So they're led by what gives them energy. <laughs> I'm I laughing. would like to say that I think you're a sexual social versus vice the other way that you thought you were. Maybe as an adult, I still feel like as a teen, I would have put the social on top more because I think the fitting in would have been a lot more primary oh. for me back then. Yeah. And even the shame piece would have been a lot more primary for me. Um, whereas the sexual four, they have a lot of volatile emotions. They go between that intense 
like love and hate kind of thing. Um, but they can be profoundly insightful. Um, Naranjo calls the sexual floor competition. That is where I was like, no, that's not me. Like, I don't want to be super competitive like that, like that kind of thing. But it's what, it's more of the competition of like winning others. (laughs) Stop laughing at me. I wish people could see your face. Um, But Hudson calls the sexual floor infatuation because they kind of tend to go all or nothing with attraction and love. Okay. hundred (laughs) percent. Also, I'm going to go back to you as a younger person. Your mom thought you would have been a three because you were very competitive. And again, I know why it was not the same reason a three would be. Secondly, you did all of the sports and all the extracurriculars and all the things throughout junior high and most of high school. So I know at some point you were like, oh, so even after trying all that, I don't fit in. And so maybe that social looked more yeah. like the emo, you know, than I'll think, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And again, this is why we say sometimes aren't set different seasons right. of life. You, you know, you've fluctuate there um so I'm just saying it could be that you were a sexual for that at some point it just became too hard to keep that up because it was not fulfilling which led you into the more social I don't know because then at that point you were looking for belonging for your more authentic self but now that you found your authentic self you're kind of back into that sexual energy and again I'm using that word sexual because it sounds weird but you if they've listened if you've listened to us this long you know what we mean it's that attraction for energy I know we're not diagnosing you, but I have to read this sentence to you. A trap for sexual four is to become attracted to people they envy. They find beauty in the rawness of life. (laughs) And all fours tend to feel some degree of social awkwardness, but sexual fours are looking for friends and partners with whom they can swim in the intense energies of life. (laughs) Okay, we're just, for the listeners, going to recap the names for these three. Moving right along. Okay. Um, yeah. What? Okay. Self-prez is the sensualist. Social is the outsider. And sexual is, what did we decide? Uh, infatuation. Cool. Okay. And apparently I am a sexual social for. That was where we landed <laughs> today. I mean, I'm not going to type you. I just think that that's You just accurate. did. Accurate. Shut up. Threes. <laughs> okay. Threes. The self-preservation three is the counter type of a three. So they use deceit to appear self-forgetting and they strive to be the best at taking care of themselves. Yeah. They mistype as a one or an eight sometimes because they are going to be like more in control of what it is that they're going to like checklist and get done and they're task oriented, but it's not about the winning as much as like accomplishing what needs to be done for themselves, but not in a, they're going to be like the most selfless looking of the, yeah. of the threes. That makes sense. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Naranjo calls the self-pres three security um, because it highlights how this type of three is less focused on image and more focused on that security and safety part. But um, Hudson calls them efficiency because they want to streamline and manage their time and their energy and get everything done. Okay. Yep. Interesting. (laughs) We know three, a lot of threes and we know self-pres threes, we know social threes and we know sexual threes. So it's kind of funny to read these out loud because we're like, oh yeah, no, totally makes sense. Yeah. Okay. The social three. Are are you going to read it? 
Yeah, I am. I'm sorry. I got oh. a little, um, like, wait a minute, the countertype. Okay. The countertype was self-pressed. So the social three, right. they use deceit to excel in social spheres. They work hard to contribute to society and they strive for prestige and recognition. This is going to be like that typical three that we teach to. They fit that general description. They're the charming, ambitious, the, the ones who are going to be the best and no one's going to, you know, take my dreams away from me. I'm going to succeed in everything that I do. Um, they're the ones who are good at kind of reading people though a little bit more. Um, and they do want to contribute. Like it's not all about them because they are going to be more social oriented, but it, not at the expense of like doing what they need to go do. Like they're going to set the task in front of them and go achieve it. Naranjo calls the social three prestige, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, and Hudson doesn't call them a different name. So I think he agrees with Naranjo here and just keeps that one. So prestige. That's the first time there too the first time mm-hmm. and the sexual three uses deceit to project charisma and attraction they're more easily hurt than other threes and they can easily access feelings yeah they're the ones who kind of know how to turn it on and like be maybe the the chameleon like the most chameleon-y of all the threes because they know what people want from them and they can turn it on and turn it off in order to kind of move forward yeah uh <laughs> Naranjo calls the sexual three virility slash femininity. And what he's pointing to is that capacity to become the idealized role in whatever their gender kind of is. Um, And Hudson is like, that's too much. So he calls it the catch. Like, wow, he's a catch or she's a catch. Like, that's who you're looking for. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So our favorite name for the self-preservation. Efficiency. And social, we only have one to choose from. Prestige. And sexual. The catch. Yes, I like that one. (laughs) Okay, we're down to two. We're going to make this happen this week. I'm excited. Okay. (laughs) Enneagram twos. Your self-preservation subtype is the counter type of a two. It uses pride to meet the self-preservation needs of others. And it, uh, the bodies pay for unprocessed emotion. So in other words, when they're not processing their emotions in a healthy way, their body will give them those clues through whatever, anxiety, sickness, aches, pain, stomach aches, probably headaches. Um, Yeah. So talk a little bit about them being the counter type of a two. Well, that's a really good question. I, I did a little bit of reading on this one specifically to help one of my girls who was kind of processing what she was. And one of the things about a two in the self-pres is they will actually take on like um, the helpless one to, and get quieter to draw people in to help them. So they don't yes. think like to ask for what they need, which any two would feel that way. But instead of making it all about other people, like we would kind of teach a stereotypical two, probably how a social would be they invite people in to take care of their needs by looking helpless to fix it. Yeah. So they can be mistyped as like a four in that way, or even a six, like I need others um, a lot. And so twos generally say like, I don't need others and like, but others need me. And and this counter type is a little bit of the opposite. So they're still going to be helpful in giving because they're a two and they want those, their needs met, but they're going to figure out maybe a subconscious way to manipulate so that others are helping them just as much or maybe more. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. 
Um, did we already say the name for that? Um, Naranjo calls the self-pres to me first and Hudson is like, no, not at all because there's still twos when you come down to the core of it. So Hudson calls them entitlement and rewards, meaning like I've given so much that I deserve to get my needs met. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. The social two, they use pride to meet the connection needs of others. They, they're unconsciously ambitious and they are comfortable in control. Mm-hmm. Um, so this might be more of that like typical two, right? Mm-hmm. Where they, they're kind of the hands and feet of whoever needs to accomplish something. They're going to focus on that connection building relationship and kind of just be who other people need them to be. So Naranjo calls that social two ambition, actually. Um, and Hudson's like, yeah, but it's totally unconscious. Like they don't, they don't yeah. realize it be- they because if they call themselves ambitious, right. Cause if they even felt any of that, that would feel like shameful to them. Yeah. So he calls Hudson calls the social two everybody's friend. Mm. So, which is really that typical social two. That's good. All right. And a sexual two, they use pride to meet the sexual energy needs of others. And again, maybe we can redefine that sexual word, but that charismatic attraction mm-hmm. and energy kind of need, um, they crave intimacy and fusion in relationship and they struggle when relationships end. So the sexual twos can be the ones that are like really obsessed and possessive in relationships because it's yeah. that energy back and forth that they really need and crave and want to meet for other people. So, I mean, not even in an intimate relationship, but maybe in all relationships, they kind of want to be that person for everybody. They want to be the one that's needed. They want to be the one that's being relied on. So um, Naranjo calls sexual twos aggression and Hudson's like, no, that's not good. Um, Sorry about that. It's fine. We're moving right along. We can't edit that out. I don't know what it was, but something is going on with our speakers. Say that last thing. Naranjo calls them what? aggression um but he uh Hudson doesn't like it so he calls it craving intimacy so it's about wanting that intimacy and closeness with others which is probably a better option that's good okay so if we were gonna recap our twos mm-hmm. the self is is entitlement and rewards the social is everybody's friend and the sexual what did I just say craving intimacy Okay. I, I like stalker for that one, but maybe that's <laughs> just kidding. Well, maybe I'm a two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're finally here. Finally to the Enneagram. ones and we can diagnose you. <laughs> Enneagram ones. Okay. So self-preservation, they use resentment to perfect themselves, responsible, but focus more on correcting self than others, worry constantly about order and mistakes. To me, that one sounds a little bit more like a perfectionist than I yes. would, than I would ascribe to. Yes. But yeah. the three zones of that connect with me a little bit. Um, in, in when I just read those zones. So what, what do, what do you have no, to say about self I don't think you're self-present. I don't think it's your top. Maybe yeah. it's a, the one you're neutral towards, but I don't think it's your top at all because they kind of, they have to have that control and that organization and the perfectionism over all of those zones in their life then so naranjo actually calls the self-preservation one anxiety uh, because they're going to actually be worried about those places and those things hudson calls it self-control which is why i wouldn't necessarily ascribe it to you 
Um, but it's wow. <laughs> okay, it's coming but back. It, <laughs> but it's the need that uh, to have that rightness or that perfection in their way of life, so that they can like guard against chaos. And like, while you don't want chaos as a one, ones don't really want the chaos. You're not the one putting the systems in place to ensure that you don't have chaos. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be if anything, one, I'm neutral to, like, I have systems, mm-hmm. but also I'm not bound to them. Yeah. Right. I don't feel like you have anxiety in those places. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The social one has righteous anger for justice and reform. They control through ideology and inspiring others and they're resistant to new opinions. I'm a hundred percent that one, or at least it's definitely at certain points in my life, maybe more than others. So I know that's a top contender. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, Naranjo called the social one inadaptability. Uh, but don't worry, Hudson didn't like that name because he thinks that that's not really like it doesn't have the flexibility in there as, as social ones can grow and adapt. So he calls social ones the crusader. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I this can... is going to be the typical reformer of a one. This is why I don't like the term perfectionist for ones. And I like reformers and probably yeah. some people would connect with the term perfectionist if they're more of that uh, self-pres. Yeah. So while social ones, they want the connection, they're really focused on that contribution zone. Like they have a mission and they are going to like set out to do it. And it's usually going to be about other people and systems and things like that. It's not going to be about their own personal things. Yeah. Uh, Cause ones don't tend to focus on their own personal needs for connection. They're going to focus on what other people need to make the world better. Yeah, that, that's that's good. All right, a sexual one is the counter type of a one. They use frustration to perfect others and they're possessive in relationships. When I first read that one, I was like, that feels like my lowest, but I've right. heard some other things that made me think maybe it's a second. So yeah, so sexual ones, they relate to that anger the most of all of them. They express anger easily than the other one subtypes. Um, and they are their criticism comes more in like, I mean, they're still self-critical, but it's more about like perfecting the world around them now. So it's still that reformer is still really, really strong in that. Um, so like the possession in, in relationship, this is what's kind of interesting. That's it's almost, me off. right. It's almost like um, so few people can meet their standards in in a partner or in a friend or something like that in that intimate relationship because you always are ones are always going to notice what's wrong or what's what's not good in somebody else and so it's really hard to find people to meet those standards so when they do find them then it's almost like well then are am I going to be able to hold on to them is that are they going to walk away because it's so hard to find someone that's going to meet some of those standards Mm. that's what it's talking about or like maybe even controlling the partner in a way that's like, I want you to meet these standards all the time, or I thought you had these standards, so keep meeting them. And so right. that possession right. is going to feel more in that control sense than like a, like a don't walk away from me sense. Although I think that's part of it. Okay. I don't feel the don't walk away from me because sometimes I'm like, all of you all need to leave me. <laughs> but I do feel that like, especially with my kids, like using frustration to perfect them. And it honestly was why I wasn't a great teacher. <laughs> Because I'm like, just do it the right way. I don't know how else to tell you. Um, and that, you know, kind of even like in my relationship with my husband, like, well, you're a reflection of me. So this is how you should be. And that took a lot of years of me trying to stop doing that because he's his own person and he doesn't have to reflect me. 
still bothers me sometimes when he's not an extension of me, but that's wrong. So maybe that is my second. But you also feel as strongly about it as I do about the social one. But you also married an Enneagram too, where you knew subconsciously, you know, I don't think it was a conscious decision that he was never going to walk away if you didn't meet his standard because he was a two. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Like what if, what if you were partnered with someone who you couldn't control as much? Not that you can, you know what I mean though? Well, that's why I didn't choose some of the other people because I couldn't control them. So maybe there was a little bit of that fear of like, well, if if they, if somebody finds somebody better, they're going to walk away from me. So I'm going to pick the person who worships me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this sounds like, do we have to put this on air? Gosh. Sorry. I'm just thinking like, you're like, well, I'm not, I'm not jealous of relationship. Like, well, because you married someone who would never walk away. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He he already thinks he married up. So I'm good. I'm golden. (laughs) Your best friend is someone who's like, oh, I attach. I'd never walk away. So (laughs) I don't feel like, (laughs) I don't feel like this has been put to the test in intimate relationships is my point. (laughs) Okay. Well, when you put it like that, it might be up in one of the top two, but I'm still going to put social as the very top thing. Cause I think it's the most motivating thing for me. I think, so too. I think the other is like something that's a blind spot of my need for control. Um, what I, I, so for two reasons, right. It's like either I'm afraid I'll be exposed for not looking good. So I want people who won't aren't a threat to that. So in that regard, I could put that under that sexual um, honor type thing. Um, Yeah. Or secondly, like the the chaos thing, like kids make messes and create chaos and that throws everything off. And then I can't be about the social reform things that I really want my energy to go to. Um, So I could see where that could be kind of a secondary thing and why, where that frustration would come from sometimes. So what we're saying is, you know that you're a social one, but you don't know what your stack is yet. That's kind of what we're saying. But I think as the more we're talking it out, it probably is what I originally thought, which was the social, sexual, and then that self-pres is on the bottom. Okay. So Naranjo calls the sexual one jealousy or zeal. And Hudson's like, nah. He calls the sexual one shared standards. Oh. And I think that's the tweak on the jealousy or zeal. Like the reason for the jealousy or zeal is to have the shared standards. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see that for sure. So the self-pres ones we called um, self-control and the social ones we called the crusader and the sexual ones we're calling, what did I, I just said it. I don't remember. Shared standards. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, so real quick, we're going to pop back through these for the um, counter type. So the counter type, for one is the sexual, which we call the shared standards, right? Mm-hmm. The counter type for a two is the self-preservation, mm-hmm. which we call, I don't remember. I, goodness gracious. Um, we call them entitlement and rewards. All right. The counter type for the three is also self-preservation. Efficiency. Yeah. The counter type for a four is also self-preservation. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that all the shame ones have the same uh, subtype as countertype. Uh, and that would be, wait for a four, the self-pres is called the sensualist. Oh yeah. Okay. And then the countertype for a five is the um, sexual. sexual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was the 
the this is my world one, the inner world. So once we get off this uh, recording, you're going to write these down and figure out if they're connected with a stance or triad and how the, the countertypes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it doesn't matter. We're done with subtypes for now because coming up soon, we've got Christmas and our words for the year. And so all of those. We're going to need a New York recap once you get back. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then we'll definitely have a cruise recap. We might just do that one live. On the on the cruise like holding like my iphone recorder up to our mouths like we did the one coming back from dallas last year yeah we had our road trip edition now we're gonna have a cruise edition <laughs> we'll have megan cammy um introduce us so we don't have to say our own names again yes this is all going perfectly well okay <laughs> well so signing off thanks deidre <laughs> thanks megan i hope this was helpful to everyone if nothing else we have talked about ourselves quite a bit in this episode and i hope you enjoyed that and that wraps up another episode of the Dauntless Grace Exchange. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a review so other people can find us. You can follow us on social media to stay connected. We're on Instagram at Dauntless Grace Ministries and our Facebook page is Dauntless Grace. For more about the Enneagram, visit our website at dauntlessgrace.org for coaching and training opportunities. And you can follow me at Enneagram Megan on Instagram. And be sure to check out our website for more information about today's podcast. Plus, you can click the resources tab to find books by all the authors we've spoken to or about. And you can find it at dauntlessgrace.org.